Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Matt shares his impressive path from UPenn as a biology major to equity research at Morgan Stanley. Learn how he managed to make an internal lateral move to Morgan Stanley's tech IB team, how that opened up the opportunity at Coastal and Venture Capital, and how he approached starting his own business. Finally, learn why Matt ended up back in the corporate world as the head of corp dev at ServiceNow and why he recently pivoted to the head of strategic finance. Enjoy. Okay, Matt, thanks for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Happy to be here. So it'd be great if you could just give, give the listeners a short summary of your bio. Sure thing. Uh, so born and raised in, in Long Island, New York, uh, went to college on the East Coast in Philadelphia, University of Pennsylvania, uh, where I was a biology major um, and ended up actually going to Wall Street after college, made a big career shift uh, mid-college and decided I wanted to get some uh some business experience before I made any long-term decisions like go to med school um, and started off my career at Morgan Stanley. Uh, and then I went on to Coastal Ventures where I was a VC for a few years, um, made a shift into entrepreneurship after that, decided I thought it'd be a great idea to try and try my hand at starting a company. Saw a lot of really great entrepreneurs at Coastal and so tried striking out on my own um, and learned a lot from my entrepreneurial experience. And then um, after a few years of that, um, right-sided again and uh, moved into a large public company. So work at ServiceNow um, doing M&A and venture investing. Um, and most recently actually moved into the finance organization uh, just a couple months ago where I now lead all of sales and marketing finance at ServiceNow. Uh, and I should say I'm, I live out here in, in California, uh, based here in San Francisco. Can you uh, just tell us what is ServiceNow for people who don't know? Yeah, so uh, ServiceNow is a enterprise software company, uh, public enterprise software company. Um, we focus historically on IT service management. That's our core business. So uh, think about for real large enterprises, they have large IT organizations to serve their tens of thousands of employees. Uh, we are the software that helps um, inventory, manage, and service all that IT. And believe it or not, that's a, that's a massive market. We do billions of dollars in revenue just in that core area. Um, we've brought it into various other businesses as well over time. Um, we provide a customer service management software product. Think about things like Zendesk for the enterprise. We do that. Uh, we also have some HR service management products as well. So the same way you could file an IT ticket, you can file a ticket related to uh, HR issues um, and a bunch of other things. Um, and it's a uh, it's about a $100 billion market cap business today with about 13,000 employees based Amazing. out here in California. Amazing. So let's start all the way back at your undergrad. So your biology, so you're thinking pre-med, medicine, why is your family in medicine? 
Uh, I have an uncle who's a radiologist who I'm very close to, and I had always admired as a kid. Um, I was always passionate about science and technology and liked science back in, you know, eighth grade bio. Um, and uh, I thought I thought being a physician would be super fun. And so that's where I pointed myself when I got to college. And so Penn was just too finance oriented. You couldn't, you couldn't, uh, <laughs> you drank the Kool-Aid and everyone was like going and recruiting for investment banking. And you that's a great say, point. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, certainly that definitely had an influence, you know, Warden obviously has an undergraduate business school and I had all these friends and fraternity brothers who were going into investment banking and wanted to know what it was all about. And so uh, went to a bunch of on-campus recruiting events, learned a bunch and got, got interested that way. So yeah, when you when you joined, I mean, you graduated in a pretty tough year, 2008. Um, yep. Pretty bad year to graduate um, in terms of job prospects. Tell me how the whole um, job at Morgan Stanley kind of unfolded. So you're you were a uh, in equity research, right? Is what you started yeah, out that's with. Right. So yeah. tell me how how that even transpired. So like, sure. at what point did you have a, like a, a summer internship with with them, and or were you late to the game? Tell yeah. me what happened. Yeah, it's a it's a really good story, a story of, of luck and fortitude, I'd say. Um, so I actually started with uh, those initial on-campus recruiting interactions where I met a guy from Morgan Stanley who was the head of Morgan Stanley Equity Research Recruiting, who had gone to Penn, who had been a French major and had transitioned to equity research. Um, really great personality, interesting, friendly dude. And um, I said, wow, this this guy's kind of like me. He made a transition from liberal arts major into, into, um, into finance. Like, how did that work? And uh, I met him at an event. I got his card. I just started following up with him, uh, shooting him, uh, shooting me emails, got on the phone with him and just just wanted to learn more about his experience. Um, and then when it came down, came time for them to um, uh, pick resumes, I actually didn't get picked uh, to, to get an initial interview. Um, I followed up with him that day and said, you know, hey, I guess it didn't work out. You know, it was great meeting you. And he said, why don't you come by uh, later later today and we'll try and try and squeeze you in. Um, Ended up why, why do you in. think you didn't get picked? Because you're a biology major? <laughs> I, yeah, because I was a biology major and had no finance experience. Uh, I think I'd maybe taken finance and accounting 101 at that at that point in time to show my interest and also to learn about what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, ended up in an interview uh, with him as well as uh, another equity research associate who had also gone to Penn, um, who was the sister of some girl I knew from uh, from a uh, studying abroad. And it was just this crazy confluence of knowing people. And, you know, I guess I did it well enough in, in the initial interview that I got final rounds in New York. Um, and at that time, I should say also, like, I didn't have strong finance and accounting background, but I had really strong industry interest. Um, and I was really interested in technology. And I had you know, read a bunch of The Economist, read a bunch of the Wall Street Journal. I was really up on kind of what businesses were doing that was technology businesses were doing that were unique. Um, and so I had that kind of fodder to talk about, about why I was passionate about being a stock analyst. Um, and they bought it and I got an internship, um, which. Um, Tell me about the, the so you're, you're well read on a specific, yeah. you know, tech, clean techs, whatever, yeah. um, whatever yeah. it was. Did you feel like um, you could pull enough from those publications to sound intelligent or did you feel like you were overselling it sometimes in the. I felt like I, I felt like I actually did know a lot. Um, and I had, I had, I was, I was pretty well read on, on the subject matter. Um, and I think more generally just about industry trends, I think, um, what gets, what gets lost I think when you, when you grow up and you've got a job and you get very specific and you get very narrowly focused and you sort of lose focus of industry trends. And I was, I was just very well versed on industry trends and where I thought the world was going. Um, and when you can sort of like spar with people on, on that stuff, 
I, I think it really, looking back, I think that really resonated that like I was able to talk about like, you know, with a semis analyst, the influence of China and how that was going to influence semis markets and like in clean tech, how regulation was going to impact, you know, impact uh, your future growth drivers in oil and gas markets and clean tech markets. I think, you know, whether I was right or wrong, I don't know, but I was opinionated and I was, and I had, and I had facts to support it. So, you know, I think, I, I think at that point being a, whatever I was, 21 year old kid, I think that it made an impact. Did you, um, did you specifically target uh, technology or clean tech and semiconductors on purpose, knowing that there was a, a role there or an opening there? Or did you like, what was the thought? It was, it was a personal interest at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I was passionate about. If you remember back in sort of 2007 timeframe, there was a lot like, the, because there was a lot of talking public media and pop culture about, um, uh, about climate change. Al Gore was sort of, you know, big front and center. And uh, I was just, I was personally interested in it. And so I'd read a bunch about it. And so therefore I wanted to work in that area. Okay. And then, so when you were interviewing and you, it sounds like you got a little bit uh, lucky, did you, in the sense of um, you had that interview with the, with the, both the guy that you had been chatting with and networking with and the girl who you kind of knew through a friend. Tell me a little bit about, um, but you still had to, you still had to do well on the super day. Yeah, that's right. You still had to get through. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about just um, the the internship then um, that sure. following summer that that following summer where you yeah. was it like a purely an equity research internship was it was, was mm-hmm. yeah it was an equity internship um, at that at, at that age and with my skill set uh, there wasn't a whole ton of value I could frankly add to the organization and it's more you know hey, they're going to find, the team will find some administrative tasks for you to do. And what's also important about equity research is teams are very, very small. So, you know, versus an investment banking team, you may only have two or three people between, you know, junior and senior that are responsible for covering uh, stock names, talking to investors, creating research reports. Um, And so your impact can be really materially felt if you go out of your way. And I think at that age, it was just about like being, um, uh, being passionate and being willing to like stay late, work hard and do whatever people want and people get people to like you, honestly. Um, and saying like, this guy is really smart and wants to work hard or guy or gal, I should say is smart and wants to work hard for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't doing, I wasn't running any models. I wasn't writing research reports. Um, but where there was an analysis here or there where it's like, Hey, can you help find dig up like these stats or like, tell me what we should think about this uh, trend or tell me what you think about uh, this company. That was really it. The, the internship culminated in, um, so there was like kind of one-off task and then there was this final project we had to do, which was, you know, give me a stock pitch. And that stock pitch had to be presented to uh, the senior uh, most leader of equity research at Morgan Stanley. Um, and um, and so, you know, I had to put together a, a, a pitch based on some industry data, valuation data, and I made my little presentation and, and I guess it went well enough that I, uh, that I got the full-time job offer. What, what are your tips? Did you have to do like the typical valuation? Like DC, did you run a DCF? Did you do tr- uh, trading, uh, trading comps and pressing transactions? For I, that? I did not build a DCF. I, I don't think I really could have built a DCF at that point in my life, but uh, some basic multiples math, like how a stock was trading versus, uh, got it. versus peers. Okay. And uh, it seems like it went okay. Do you, any tips for, for doing that for interns in terms of how to do it? Were you nervous yeah. when you were presenting it? I was incredibly nervous. Um, and do you remember I what think, you pitched? Do you remember the stock? 
it was it was one of the coal stocks. I, I was actually working for a coal analyst uh, that summer, um, and um, you know, it, I guess I guess it went well enough. I think I think what's super underrated in terms of um, being great, really, in any in, in any uh, in any job where you're uh, have to present is presentation skills. And um, I I don't know if I was a great presenter then. I think I was a good enough presenter then. I think it's something actually that gets lost on. Um, you know, in a lot of, you know, business training is how do you present and communicate yourself? Um, I think it's something that I um, was always willing to, to do. I don't think I spent a lot of time thinking about my capabilities and professionalizing my presentation skills, but um, it was, it was crucially important, you know, in terms of like how I dressed, how I spoke, um, not only what was on the page, but how did I present it? What, what were the key ideas I was communicating? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was super important. And ultimately being a research analyst, um, was very important that you could communicate effectively. You're you're telling salespeople, you're telling investors what they should buy or sell and why. Um, like that is the job. If you're great at that, you will excel at it. Um, and so presentation skills were very important. Sure, you have to have like the core capabilities of like how do you value a stock? How do you think about one stock versus other? How do you think about sectors versus others? Like that's all in your head. But how do you communicate that ideas effective? Those ideas effectively, I think, separates you know good from great. So you made an internal transition. At Morgan Stanley, yep. from equity research to banking to technology banking. Yeah. Um, so you did the you were in SF office and you started to have to commute down to Menlo. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but tell me a little bit about why. Number one, how you even pull that off? Because I know it's sure. probably not easy to make the internal transition. And number two, uh, what the switch was like? Was it did it go from like seventy hour weeks to hundred, or was it? <laughs> uh, you know, what was that like? And what, yeah. why did why did you even want to do that? Sure. Um, so. I realized that I was interested in this whole finance business world, but like being a stock picker long-term was never really my ambition. I wanted to get like some good finance slash business training and experience, but I was like, I can sit around here for a little while longer and keep learning, but like, this is not pointing me in the long-term right direction. Um, And so uh, investment banking was this tool that was going to unlock all these long-term opportunities for me. Uh, ultimately what I thought on the buy side, but it turned out to be you know, broader than that, um, to have both the training as well as I think the, the pedigree and stamp that would allow me to do lots of other things in finance. Um, and that was really the ambition. Looking was, back, looking back, is that true? Absolutely. Um, I was terrified to go work in investment banking and I heard horror stories of working till two in the morning, you know, seven days in a row and, you know, blowing up weekends and holidays. And I was like, this sounds scary and terrible. I don't want to do that to my life. What were you working? Uh, sorry, what were you working in equity research? What were your hours on? In equity research, I was, I was never working more than 50, 60 hours a week. And, oh, if, okay, I, so and if you're in front of the computer for 12 hours a day, like you're not cranking that whole time. Maybe you're watching the stock screen, you know, talking with your, 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 uh, your lead analyst about ideas. Um, you're, there's, there's, there's a difference between sitting and being at work for 12 hours and like, grinding for 12 hours, which is what you do in investment banking. Well, sometimes in banking, it's, it's, it can be a slow day during the day and then you have to be there all night. <laughs> Not in the Menlo Park tech <laughs> bank. <office laughs> They're busy. Um, I, I, don't, I can't remember a single day where I sat on my hands for more than an hour. Um, so it was an intense environment. Um, but but how, how do you even pull that off? Because I, 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 yeah, so I pulled the rabbit out of the hat, out of the hat there too, Patrick. So um I really wanted to, to move to the tech banking group. I knew that was a, uh, a really you know, highly regarded group inside of Morgan Stanley. It obviously leveraged my tech background, which I wanted to continue to do. It was in California, which is where I lived and wanted to be. Um, 
And so I reached out to internal recruiting. I said, I want to go work in that group as an analyst. And they said, well, there's no, there's no hiring going on right now. Said, okay. All month later, I want to go work in tech banking. Oh, there's no, there's no one hiring. We can't, you can't put you over there. Okay. I went out and I got a job offer from another bank and I went back to recruiting and I said, Hey, I want to stay at Morgan Stanley. I told you that three months ago. Um, can you, you know, I'm going to go leave if you don't give me an offer. And uh, within a week I had an offer at Morgan Stanley. <laughs> I love it. It's a very good lesson. Yeah. It's a very good lesson. It so was like, risky as heck and scary. And I couldn't tell me where you, can you tell me where you uh, got the other offer? It was at Lazard. Uh, and in, in SF? NSF. NSF, yeah. The, uh, the MD sat across from me. And, and the, my interview went really well at Lazard. They clearly had a need. They liked me. And in my first round of interview day, the MD sitting across from me said, look, I think we're going to get you an offer. And what we really shouldn't do is you shouldn't go back to Morgan Stanley and try and like leverage this. Because like, by the way, if they do that for you, like you can't trust those guys. It was already like countering and anticipating I was going to do oh, that. Oh shit! Um, and he was right, and that's what I did, <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> oh my god, that is scary, man. That that must have your harvest been pounding, and they were like, "Yeah, you know. I wasn't ready for that type of pressure and stress." It, yeah, I wasn't even know, really sure what I was doing. I think probably at twenty five years old, but uh, I had an instinct, and it and it worked. But it's really good. you were told no two times or three times before he went at least out. two times at least two times um yeah. and they just said there's just not a need even though there probably was if all the analysts were driving yeah. right that's um, right they just didn't want to yeah. bring somebody in from the side you know, lateral at the end of the day i don't like I, I never really got to the bottom of what was going on if like they really had a need or if it was like an ego thing of like we just can't lose people to other banks i think in investment banking like they're like people are fiercely competitive about like losing people to other other banks i just i just that happens to be how they are um, and I think that perhaps well, it probably, here. well, what it does, it created some sense of urgency. It was suddenly not, oh, he's just going to be stuck in ER, but like, wait a second, is this guy good? And then they yeah. talk, they maybe talk to the people and they're like, actually, he's good. Like yeah. you shouldn't lose him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You think that's what happened? Do you think they actually called like the, the people in Menlo called to your. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I, I had good referrals. I had a good, a good relationship and, and, um, did they know you were trying to transfer internally? Uh, no, I don't think so. So you think they got a call out of the blue to your That's equity right. research? Yeah. It was like, I showed up on a Tuesday with an offer. I told my boss, he immediately called management. And then like the next day I got a call from recruiting. that was like, we don't have a spot. We're going to try and figure this out. We'll let you know. And I think I had until like the following Tuesday, I think to give Blizzard an answer. Um, I think on the Friday, I got a call from recruiting. I was like, you've got an interview on Monday now at Menlo Park Banking. I went down on Monday. I want to say by end of day, I had an offer. And then I called Lazard and said, no, thanks. And then I yeah, worked, started at Morgan Stanley two weeks later. So, but tell me a little bit about uh, the interview. Yeah, for the lateral interview, what was it like? Was it, was it, were they grilling you on like technicals at this point? Cause you'd been working yeah. for two years. You know, looking back, um, they really didn't. It was, it was kind of a softball. Um, I, uh, and I don't know why, um, honestly, I, I, I have thought about that before. Like, why didn't they go me hard? I, I almost sort of feel like if yeah, I why was, weren't associates just, just grilling you. That's what I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I think maybe they were desperate for people. <laughs> I think, I, I think honestly there, I think it's one of two things. I think, um, uh, one is perhaps there was a lot of assumed knowledge that like I knew how to do valuation analysis, which is like, you know, and could crank in a model, which probably couldn't at the same level of the banking analyst. I, I know I couldn't at the same level of the existing banking analyst at that mm -hmm. point in time. Mm -hmm. um, but two is um, 
I think there's actually this level of insecurity actually from bankers towards research people that like they know more than you do about companies and industries. Mm-hmm. And so they may perhaps weren't, you know, comfortable uh, getting into weeds with me about like individual companies that like I may know more than they do. And, you know, my, my knowledge may have spanned, you know, two more paragraphs than theirs, but um, you know, perhaps that was a, or, yeah, or I'm, not, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised they did. They, you know, my guess is they, the associates and VPs probably did want other people. And it was, do you know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. I mean, you guys are doing a ton of live deals, right? Right. That, right. It's like, we've got an opportunity to increase budget. Like, sure. You know, Take it. yeah. We don't want our yeah. analysts burning out, you know? Yeah. Um, that's right. So tell me, so you get there. It, okay. So they give you the offer. Um, you immediately say yes. I'll do it. I actually didn't immediately say yes. So tell um, me how that all went down and tell me how your yeah. mind went through the commute. Thought yeah. Process. So, um, so, so Lazard had verbally told me that I would be guaranteed top bucket, which I don't know what that meant. I just know it meant that I'd be paid well. And, uh, and so I went to the staffer, Morgan Stanley, who's uh, still there and is a senior guy at the company, at Morgan Stanley still. And I said, you know, Lazard's offering me top bucket. Like, will you match that? And he was like, he thought about it for a second and he said, well, actually, I think he said, let me think about it. And then, and then I think I talked to him again, uh, you know, a day later and he said, um, and I brought it up again, I said, like, are you willing to match that? And he said, let me ask you a question. If I don't give you that, you're not going to take this offer. And I said, no, I'll still take the offer. <laughs> it was a great, it was a great way to put it back on me in a, in a non-threatening way. Cause I was clearly being aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking back, I, I, I should be more prepared for him to say something like that. Um, and it ended up working out fine, but like, they just weren't going to guarantee me top bucket. Um, uh, maybe they would have, maybe, you know, maybe he respected the fact that I was being aggressive and he like wanted to see how much of a shark I really was. Yeah. Um, but I just backed down when he pushed me. Cause I was like, yeah, no, this, <laughs> that's like, normal for a 25 year old, you know, like, <laughs> like, what do you expect? You're not like yeah. some seasoned veteran yeah. um, negotiator, but okay. So that's fair. So they didn't guarantee you top bucket, but you still said, no, I'm going to take it. And so they said, okay, fine. You have an offer. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you accept, tell me a little bit about, um, you have two weeks to prepare. What's going through your head in those two weeks? You're thinking, how am I going to commute down here? What you have, could you oh, have a car? Sorry, like yeah. what's going on? Yeah. So I, I immediately decided that I needed to move down to, uh, to the peninsula. I was like, this is going to be, I need to be all in on this. Like my life's shutting down for the next year or two as I like do banking. And so I was committed to moving down to, uh, to the peninsula. Like I was like, I was like already in the works of like trying to find a place. And so I had, I'm trying to remember, I'm pretty sure I'd already found a place actually to move down to in Palo Alto before I started. If not, there was maybe like a week or two of commute. Actually, no, that's not right. I don't think I ever had to commute. I I had that, I had that place locked down before I, before I started. And so it was close to the office, I hope. Yeah. I mean, it was a 10 minute drive and so that 10 minute was super painful at three in the morning, but yeah. <laughs> and so you had a car. I had, a, you're right. I bought a car and yeah. I got a place in Palo Alto. That's right. What was your rent back then? <laughs> uh, $3,000 uh, or something great. My rent. So my rent in San Francisco was, I had a roommate. It was $2,500 a month. So $1,250 a person. This is in 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, and my rent to Palo Alto, I think it was a little higher. Maybe it was like 50, which is, which is kind of funny, right? Cause you're not in the city. Yeah. Um, 
But it was a, I was moving from a you know a two bedroom split versus a one bedroom. Yeah, yeah, fair. Okay, so you're um, you start and tell me what is the hardest thing about that transition? So within the first month, what's yeah. are you immediately fed to the sharks? Are you given any training? What was it like as a yeah. lateral internal? Like given any training, there was not any training. I think what they did for the first like month was so I, I got really lucky that I would I I also. Uh, my life's a story of luck. Uh, I got, um, I was there like right before the second years were about to transition out. And so um, there were a bunch of second years who were like, oh, here's this young kid. Like my life's kind of on cruise control. Like, why don't I like help train him up? And so there were just a, there were a bunch of guys in the bullpen who were willing to like spend time with me. And like, I got to partner up with them. Like they were actually like the lead analyst and I was just like sexually supporting them. Mm-hmm. Um so I remember that, and that was a really good way to learn. Like a mini um, internship almost. Yeah, exactly. Um, How long was that, like a month? Yeah, I want to say that was like, yeah, that was maybe like That's like key. A month. That month yeah. is key. Yeah. Um, and Because you saw pace. You got to see how they right. worked, how fast yeah. they worked, how late yeah. they worked. <laughs> was right. it was it painful right off the bat? Or were you like staying late right away, just supporting them? Or were what was it like? Were like you surprised at all? I, the reality I, I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was. I mean, I, I wasn't like the guy on anything, but like, I would like everyone was sitting around until 10, 11 o'clock minimum, like making sure we're all good. So, you know, that was, a, that was a change. And I remember, uh, I, I mean, this, the stress, the stress I put on myself was just exorbitant. Um, I remember I like lost like five pounds in the first like month because I was just you just, you have so much nervous energy of like, Oh my God, what am I supposed to do? Uh, I just know that I have to be here late and like, people are going to tell me things to do like whenever, wherever, like I need to just be ready for, you know, for, right. for impact. and, and I was just super stressed out. Um, and probably took away from my learning capability because I was just so stressed, but. Were you afraid? Like there's a little bit of an imposter syndrome there. You're like, they're going to find, yeah, yeah, totally. I was like, I don't belong here. I'm not as good as these kids. Absolutely. So you're there. Tell me when you kind of started those kids left after a month or two. Tell me when you got put on your first live deal. Like you were the lead analyst and uh, how things progress. And then, and then we can kind of get into, we don't have too much longer. So I want to start getting into why um, the stint was about a year, year or so long from what I can tell from your LinkedIn or, or, yeah when the That's transition right. started happening yeah. um, and when you started thinking. Sure. Um, so I want to say I started in like July-ish. And so maybe, maybe like after like, don't want to say around two months after like when they brought in the new first year associates, I got staffed on this one uh, deal. We did the, um, we did a, a public equity financing and debt financing for this company expansion. Um, so I ended up, I ended up doing a lot of, because I had done semis and clean tech at, and research, I got staffed on all these semis and clean tech deals in banking. Um, and so I was working on this semis deal, um, and it was, uh, equity net financing. And, you know, the reality is there, you know, there's a lot of M&A that got done in, in the group as well, but with equity net financing, you're doing a lot of like little analysis. It's not like I need to be able to build a three statement model. It's like, help think through the equity dilution of raising, you know, a hundred million dollars of equity. And so um, I wasn't like thinking through complex M and a math and valuation math uh, when I started and building a lot of like 
pretty biz dev pages, you might call them. And so um, the like mathematical rigor wasn't that intense. The work was hard, but um, that's where it started was with the that work deal. was hard because of the hours you mean? The work was hard because of the hours. Yeah. And I had a, yeah, so you, you were doing more like ECM, you're doing more like <laughs> ECM, DCM stuff. No, uh, no, no. I mean, it, like you're thinking through, um, I, is it ECM stuff? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, like, I guess any equity and debt financing is, is, is equity capital markets, tech capital market stuff. But like, I wasn't trying to think through like the, the ECM part was really, Hey, this company wants to raise hundred million bucks. Tell me who the target investor should be in like, you know, what percentage of float is like reasonable versus we were trying to think through like how's this impacting your, um, your, your corporate, uh, you know, your corporate financials when doing this. You went, you, uh, you mentioned an associate that you worked for. Was it an associate that had not been previously an analyst was coming right out of MBA and didn't know what they were doing? <laughs> he did know what he was doing. He was very technical. Uh, he yeah. had not been an analyst. Um, he was, uh, he was very technically bright. Um, he, he, but, but he was just a workhorse and he just wanted to crank pages. Um, and so we would just do it over and over and over and over again until he thought it was perfect. Uh, it was really painful. Um, and he was probably the, he was the main associate I worked for, for that whole first year at, 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 uh, Morgan Stanley banking. So was that associate the reason you started looking elsewhere for the next job? It was, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was part really of it, possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, look, I, Candidly, I don't think anyone wants to be in banking any any longer than they have to be, you know, it, it, as an analyst. And so my my initial plan slash goal was like I can just do one year of banking and I can try and get uh, a P or VC job, and that was the goal. Um, I had to tread carefully because like they hired me with the intention of that I would stick around for at least two years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, uh, you know, but I was like, so if, working- I, if I find the right job, I'm going to jump. So working those 80, 90, even hundred hour weeks, how were you, did you find any time to even talk with, I mean, you're, at least you're cl- yeah. close to the, to VC land, right in yeah. uh, Sand Hill yeah. Road right there. In coast. Was, you know, I lived right there hard. in Stanford too. I What's lived right, that? I lived right there, um, yeah. right next to Stanford. So it's a beautiful area. So did yeah. you like just start hitting people up on LinkedIn? How did you even get in touch with these VCs or PE funds out there? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I fashion myself as like a strong uh, ambitious networker, but like, actually looking back, I don't think I really was doing that. I actually was pretty reliant on the recruiters because I seemed like they were the gateway, at least at the time to like all these great VC growth equity PE jobs. And so, mm-hmm. um, that's really what I was, I was relying on. So when did you, did they call you? Did you call, reach yeah, out to they, them? They reached out to me. I mean, I think, you know, maybe a handful, I, I was like, Hey, I'm this new analyst, like put me in your database too. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's pretty easy to get, get a hold of them. And so did you just go start meeting them and trying to impress them with your <laughs> with yeah, how well-spoken exactly. you're like, Hey, you, I can get a job. I'm, I'm really well-spoken about yeah. these industries and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that, that, that's right. Um, and there's this whole dance you have to play and I loathe having to work with, uh, outside recruiters, but, uh, and it was frustrating. I didn't like it, but, uh, uh, yeah. Coastal has to be one of the top VC jobs out there though. Right. So interestingly enough, that was not sourced through a recruiter. Uh, so that was sourced through, there was a woman who was the head of equity capital markets and technology at the time. And she knew one of the partners at Kosla and he had pinged her directly and said, are there any analysts that are interested? And Morgan Stanley at the time had this uh, philosophy of like, we're going to help all of our analysts get jobs because they're going to go to the buy side and they're going to help, be, they're going to become our clients and they're going to like us. Um, and so she had like blasted the analyst class and said, Hey, Kosla is looking for an analyst this year. Anyone interested? And I was like, 
okay, that's me. They're, uh, you know, they were the top, you know, probably the largest in terms of AUM clean technology investor in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, knew a lot about Vinod. Um, at the time, I was like, I was really more interested in doing growth equity as an asset class. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, man, am I going to like thread the needle here between like clean tech and growth equity? At the time, um, there was grumblings of or rumblings of uh, Silverweight Craftworks starting up, which was going to be like this clean tech growth equity firm. And I was like, that's the ideal role. Um, it was a brand new fund, and like they weren't hiring uh, like an associate at that point in time. And so um, I went, got, you know, I went all out on getting the Kosla job, and I and I got it, but it wasn't through a recruiter. How do you think? Uh, what do you think the odds were of, of you actually landing that job? How many how many bankers were they probably interviewing for that? And why were they interviewing bankers? Why aren't they interviewing like consultants and stuff like that? Did, is that typically where they pull from? So I think at least at the time, the thought was... Um, There's not a lot of modeling in VC, right? Yeah. I, I Well, I, I, think, I think they wanted a financial analyst to think through like dilution analysis. Term and, sheet, like, capital. Yeah, like, cash. How much should we value this? And like, yeah. you know, what's that going to look like? And like, you know, in the second, third, fourth round of financing, like right. how much should we put to work here? Got it. So you were doing, were they hiring you specifically not for specific industries, but almost to support people across that, like, uh, and doing more yeah, of that? Yeah, it was just to be a general that? financial analyst in, in, in the firm. Yeah. So tell me what those interviews were like. Um, Theoretical thought, seeing how you think. Cases. Yeah. So, so I think there, you know, a lot about, you know, cultural fake and this person worked with us uh, a lot about, um, uh, you know, tell me about an experience in you know a deal you led and what was that like and what did you learn? Okay. Um, and then in one of them it was you know, pitch me uh, an investment you should make right now. We should make right now and why? How'd you prep for that? <laughs> I I actually was not well prepared for that. Uh, so what did you say? You just like uh, regurgitated your coal pitch? I I, uh, <laughs> I I I had I had an idea at the time. Um, well, I, on the fly, I I, I thought of a. a You're telling me you didn't have a pitch ready, and you were able to wing it and still get the offer. Is that right? I'm trying to think. That's impressive if you if you did that. I feel like I feel like maybe I I had. It wasn't like a presentation. I think I had had some notes written down. Right, like you had uh, you had been looking at. Did you trade on the side, anyways? Yeah. So I you know, so this was there was a private company. So I remember what I pitched. I pitched I pitched O Power, which was private at the time, went public, and then got bought by SAP. Mm-hmm. Um, so I and I did have some like I think I had some 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 like notes I had written down and studied about like why I thought it was a good company. I think the reality was like second and third order questions I was really weak on, mm-hmm. um, and I like it showed. But I got so, But you got to the next round. That's right. And how many rounds were there? Like three or four? I basically had to interview with all the partners, <laughs> like which was I don't know five, six of them at the time. And so you had yeah. to go back each time to, to interview with one partner. Or did they? <laughs> I think. Well, no, I might have. I might have interviewed with like two at a time once, but I, I probably went to the office. Like how do you? Three how, times. And how many analysts? I mean, what do you think the odds are? So they're probably interviewing how many people? Like 30, 40 in that in that final round. And you, there's how many sure. they're hiring? Like two. Yeah, maybe they only hired. They, I was the only one. Um, How do you get that job? Why do you think you got that job? You weren't even pre- prepped for that thing. So, like, yeah, I it think, probably annoys a lot of people. Like, how do you get that close to VC job when you're not yeah. even like? Is it is it confidence? Is it just matter of factness? Is it because you're a little bit older than the other analysts? I think. Look, I had had I had good experience in like being a mortgage and tech banking. So, like, check the box of like, yeah, this guy can do brand, financial analysis. Brand for us. Was strong. But yeah. brand was strong. Yeah. I had done so. I had, 
I had taken this company's souls eye in public as an analyst. And so that was really important experience for me because they had done a bunch of clean tech and two of their biggest clean tech holdings at the time were Amaris and Kior. And so like I had industry relevance there and could think through that for got them. It. Okay. And so they still had other, um, you basically got to the, okay. You basically, the way I see it, you got to the right group, you did yeah. the right deals and you were confident enough in the interviews where they're like, okay, this yeah. kid's sharp. Yeah. 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 But I, you know, I, I, you're right. I mean, I, I definitely flailed at that, uh, investment pitch. That wasn't great. Do you feel like, uh, you were close to not getting the offer? Did you have any other offers at the same time? I had any other offers at the same time or like, uh, I don't think different? so. No, I don't think so. I, I had a, I think I had a final round at, at TCV, but I didn't get it. Okay. So why, so you're there for a good three years. I know we don't have too much more time, too much time. Yeah. So I want to move, go, go forward. You were there for a good yeah. three years. Yeah. Um, how was it different? More conceptual, less modeling, yeah. obviously less. What was the day-to-day like at, yeah. at closer? And then, and then why go leave all of that? Was it more like a uh, two or three years and out type program? Or That's was right. It, yeah, I mean, they, they, yeah. from the get-go, they were like, you know, this is going to be a, pre-MBA program, um, even though it wasn't like a program the same way folks go to, I don't know, TPG and there's a class of people and it's like very set specific dates start and end. And, um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a program. Um, the day-to-day was, was very interesting. I got to, you know, sit in, in lots of, uh, investor pitches and, and hear, um, you know, learn, you know, learn what great companies were doing. I got to be super helpful with the portfolio. I got to do a lot of portfolio support, um, help companies with their next financing and think through their next financing. Um, I got to, uh, try and find new great ideas myself, which I probably didn't really get confident enough to do until much later in my time there, but, um, try and build a thesis around an area and go and like have a few calls and present ideas to, to partners. Mm. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it was, it was a really interesting learning experience, but I would say it was also incredibly hard. I don't know if I was really mature enough to like do the job at a very high level at that point in time, having just come from banking where you basically just sit in front of a computer and you're told what to do all day long yeah. to now go and like take your calling card and like figure out what investments we should make. It was a very tough transition. I don't think I was really even internalizing how difficult that transition was at the time. It's super hard uh, when you're told like, like when you go to the bathroom to yeah, oh, like right. when you go to the bathroom to like, they don't tell you anything. Right. Um, just so, like, here's your desk. You go like, right. tell us what yeah. to do. Yeah. And looking, so looking back, I would have done a lot of things differently. Um, um, and, you know, learned a lot from the experience, but like was a very, very, very tough transition to make. Like if you're going to go into my, my recommendations, you're going to go into venture straight out of banking. You should really do it in a place where you have like, there's more infrastructure and uh, more people around you. Like I see places like NEA hiring, like a bunch of associates together every year. It's like, yeah, you need that support network of people to be like, you should do this. You shouldn't do this. I learned this was good. I learned this was bad right. and talk and communicate and like figure it out together. Um, Coastal did, didn't have enough other associates or analysts around you. Yeah, right? it was, it was a very, it was a lot of partners, top pipe, the top heavy firm. And so yeah. um, I was trying to learn for myself and didn't even know what I was doing right or wrong, honestly. Right. Right. Yeah. So as your third, as you're getting into your third year there, what's going through your mind? Are you thinking MBA? Yeah. What's, what are the options and when, why did you go do your own business? Yeah. Little- I, I never, Really Give me a quick to path go, on that too. On that. Yeah, sure. I, I never really wanted to go to business school. Um, maybe we can go even go a little longer, but I never really wanted to go to business school. I uh, uh, I did it kind of as like a safety valve. I was like, I like I don't want a big hole in my resume. I don't want to just like leave and not know, you know, and just sit around. So like, okay, why don't I why don't I go and and take my GMAT and apply? Like, which was a 
very, very rigorous process to do all that. Mm-hmm. I did it. Uh, I ended up uh, getting into uh, Wharton, but not going. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was just like, man, I could probably use this capital to like do something better than sit in a classroom for two years. And like, I'm really not happy about the fact that I'm just going to blow all the savings on school. And by the way, I'm also seeing all these people in my network who like have made it to post MBA type venture growth equity jobs without a business school degree. Like, man, that's a really expensive proposition then. Um, And I wasn't convinced that it was going to be right for me and I would be happy about it. So I ended up applying, getting in, turning it down, um, and decided like, and, and I guess I had thought like, like the, like the options were like, I can use all this money to get a degree or can use all this money to try and, you know, build a company and create, um, you know, something that's like a self-sustaining wealth creation tool. And I got really excited about that opportunity and that's the path I ended up going down. How'd you get that? What was the idea? And, uh, tell me how, how it went. <laughs> so, uh, the realities I, of an entrepreneurship, tell me. Yeah. What and I don't, I hopefully I don't want to get into too dark hole, but you can pull me out if I, if I get too, too deep, no, but I like dark yeah. holes. Let's get, yeah. so, <laughs> let's explore them. So people don't make the same mistakes. And stuff. So, um, I was always interested in, you know, if I was going to build a lifestyle business, I wanted to be in an area that was like more obscure because I didn't want, I wanted to have a lifestyle business. Therefore, like I didn't want venture to touch it. And I couldn't, I was worried I couldn't compete if I found something that was like bright and shiny, obvious in the consumer space. I was more interested in B2B where like you can find some really unique problem by like digging and studying a space that like was more protected, uh, therefore, but also, you know, doesn't, didn't need to be a massive market if I found a, a good lifestyle business. Um, it's, you know, it's small smart. Market, like, I, I like that thesis. It's smart. Yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, venture or growth equity is never going to touch this. So right. who's actually going to go after it and do a good job? Right. Um, and, and moreover, like, if you think about the economics of building a nice lifestyle business, like if I had a business that had five or 10 million of top line and like 50% EBITDA margins and me and my one principal owned 50% of the company, like I can draw a really nice cash flow every single year, like versus any other job on the planet. And like, you think about like a business that does five or $10 million revenue, it's, it's measly, like it's small. So like I should be able to rip that out of the universe. And so that was my feeling. Um, and so I was looking around for different ideas, talking to lots of people, um, do you feel like and, you were swayed because you'd been seeing all these incredible founders coming through closely? You thought, oh, this is easy. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. It, yeah. It, you know, company creation seemed very straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so I, um, I ended up, you know, the, the story of me going after my first business idea was, um, you know, I owned a car at the time I mentioned, and I got a piece of snail mail, um, towards the end of my time at Kosla that said like, your car warranty is about to elapse, you know, buy a, buy an extended warranty. And I'm like, this is interesting. Like I'm going to look into this. So I call my dealer and they tell me like, yeah, actually your car warranty is about to run out. Like, would you like buy extended warranty? I said, okay, what's the price? Give me the details. Great. Yeah. I'm interested in buying it. And then I said, why don't I try and call a couple other dealers just to price compare? And I call one of the dealer and it's like, they're selling a different product at a different price. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense. How does that work? And learn that like you can buy a car extended warranty from any dealer um, doesn't have to be like the infinity warranty. You can buy other extended warranties. And I was just like blown. And I also realized that the piece of snail I got actually was not from my dealer. It was from some third party broker that bought my information and realized that my warranty was about to run out. I was like, this is an inefficient market. Um, did some research and I realized you know, the car warranty premium market was like tens of, you know, I want to say it was like over $10 billion a year just in America. 
I was like, wow, this is an inefficient, massive market. It's financial aided. I'm a finance guy. Like I can figure this out. Um, and so I you know, did some digging and did some learning for like a month or two. I was like, you know what? I'm not ready to go and start a business right now. I need to keep learning, but I need to get a job. So I realized there was this company called Square Trade here in San Francisco mm-hmm. um, that was a large electronics warranty provider, private company backed by Bain Capital. Um, I was like, I'm going to go work there and like learn this industry before I build my business. So I went there. <laughs> I left Kosla. I went and worked in the marketing department of Square Trade. I convinced them that I was now a, a marketing guy. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, worked there, learned a lot about the warranty business on the side was sort of learning about the, the, the car warranty space, which mm-hmm. by the way, Square Trade was not in there with the electronics warranty space. So it wasn't competitive. Um, and, um, and yeah, so spent a year there learning. And then after that year went off and tried starting a car warranty brokerage business with my best friend from, from Penn, who was a, a Goldman private equity and then trader and, uh, we tried starting this business together. So he liked um, the idea. He loved the idea. Yeah. I mean, we we were working on it together for a year, just kicking around ideas. And the basic idea was um, uh, the way uh, the way warranties are bought and sold today primarily is they're sold at the dealership uh, at the point of sale when you buy a new car. And you've got a car warranty finance person mm-hmm. that will bundle in the car warranty uh, with the with the, the auto loan. Um, so basically, as opposed to paying you know three hundred dollars a month for your car, you're paying. $325 because it includes the car and the car warranty. Right. Uh, and the finance, uh, the, the dealer is making usually like a uh, hundred, it's a hundred percent gross margin on, on that, on that piece of paper. Um, yep. They don't have any underwriting costs. They basically just, you know, there's a third party warranty provider. They're saying here, Patrick, you should buy this, this warranty. Uh, they sell it to you for $2,000 and the underwriting cost is a thousand dollars. There's a thousand dollars of of margin yep. there, but there's no cost to the dealer. Um, so I said to myself, huh, I want to go and basically replicate those dealers economics, but I can't compete with the dealer at the dealer. So I'm going to go and find those customers once they've left the dealership or before they've gotten to the dealership. Yep. There's all these different points uh, where people are, are touching a car consumer and not trying to sell a warranty. Uh, I want to be that intermediary. And so came up with a list of examples of places where we could try and um, sell car warranties as a, as a broker, basically just provide a markup on the underwriting cost. And for being there at the point of sale and creating that distribution strategy, I can make a lot of money. Um, it turns out that selling car warranties is very complex. Uh, it's a complicated financial product. It's a large ASP. It's you know, usually two to $3,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and mostly people don't trust car warranty providers. Uh, and so um, we had a really hard time. We learned a lot, but I learned a lot about like, you know, coming up with a business strategy, learning about a new market, figuring how to sell a product, figuring how to market a product. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I learned a lot. I didn't sell a lot. I didn't make really any money off of this endeavor, but um, it was a really valuable experience. I subsequently went on to uh, start a couple other companies as well um, in the software space. Mm-hmm. Uh, decided that so, you know, creating a, and, and I think a fundamental learning too about that process was I wanted to be in the B2B space but really I was in the B2B2C space being a car warranty uh, 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 broker, right? I was going to a, a third party, like for example, we we're trying to distribute through um, tire and wheel stores or auto mechanics. Mm-hmm. And I convinced those people, you should sell my warranty and you'll make money. And they said, okay, the consumer wants to buy it, they can buy it. Um, but consumers weren't, weren't buying. And so I couldn't control my end sale, my end consumption. Right. So I was like, I like B2B. I need to just sell B2B, not B2BC. <laughs> and uh, software, you know, clearly as a, a, as a, as a business model has been, you know, fantastic economics. And so 
I had my co-founder who was, uh, uh, he could, he could code. And so um, struck out and tried building a couple of different software businesses. One went kind of nowhere, but, you know, sold some product. Another one actually was, was, was pretty successful. Um, that was actually in the shipping analytics space. Um, and ultimately after this sort of three, four year journey of square trade, plus trying to start a couple of companies, I was like, man, I did all this work. I think to show for it, I've learned a lot. And like, people think I'm, you know, interesting and know some stuff, but like my career is totally gone AWOL um, and decided I needed to go back to um, working at a big public stable company to sort of reset my career. Um, and uh, we're still passionate about software and technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like, I need to go work at like the best branded software company I can at a big company where I can like right size my career, right size my lifestyle. Because obviously when you're an entrepreneur, your life is consumed by that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I ended up uh, working for a guy I actually had worked for at Morgan Stanley Banking, who was running uh, corporate development service now. And uh, he hired me as a, uh, as a deal lead to do M&A and venture investing at, at uh, ServiceNow uh, three years ago. That's awesome. And so like from the, from the time you decided, okay, I need to go change things up to, to that getting hired, how long was it? Was it pretty fast? Cause you just, you knew the guy, you just started talking. It was, it was actually super hard. Um, it was okay. It, it, it was, um, that's something that I think is underappreciated about when you like go off on your own. It's like getting back into the world can be really tough and painful because people want to know, why did you do what you just did? Like you're not, you know, off the street doing what I, you know, if I want to hire a marketing person or a salesperson or a finance person, like you're not that right now. Um, and so it was hard. And plus I had done a bunch of random stuff for the last, you know, three, four years. And so um, why not just, you had to kind of put it on the resume. So there wasn't a huge gap, but you, you could, couldn't you just leave this, the square trade stuff up there? Is that what you did? Yeah. I, I mean, I did. I worked at square trade for a year, but then I tried. Oh, it was only a year. Okay. But then like you did your own thing. Years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it was like, what did you just do? Like, that's a really cool story, but like, you don't have much to show for it. And like, I don't really know what to make of that experience, but like you were an analyst seven years ago in finance, like that's cool. Um, and I was older. Right. So it's like, they don't want to give me a really junior job because I'm older and like have more years of experience. So it was hard. Um, and so I knew I wanted to work at service now. Um, it, it took, it took several months actually. I had, and I was doing consulting for another company for a time just to like get cash flow. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was really committed to like, I'm not going to do another high risk, unstable startup type thing. I need to go work at a big stable company. And I held out for it. Um, I ended up getting two offers at the same time. One was at, uh, you know, pre-IPO private software company doing kind of a similar job in corporate development and special projects, mm-hmm. um, working for the COO. And then this job, which was working for the head of corporate development, uh, VP of corporate development, um, and ended up deciding to to go to ServiceNow because I was like, I'm committed to finding a more stable job. Okay, we only have a couple more minutes. Tell me how you made the transition from head of corp dev to now strategic finance and, yeah. and why you did that. Yeah, so I've been at ServiceNow for three years. And in those three years, um, I went from being a deal lead to being the head of corporate development, um, which was a fantastic experience. I've learned a lot about like, doing deals, you know, communicating inside of a large organization, executing deals inside of a large organization. Um, and it's it's a fantastic role. And for anyone in investment banking who's interested in core development, I speak very highly of, of the opportunity. Um, it's, it's, it's super fun, it's exciting. Um, you, have, you have really important uh, uh, execution and sort of love within the company for like doing what you do and you get to interact with very senior people. Um, so all good. 
Um, I did it for three years and I was like, man, I don't want to be doing this for the next 10 years of my life. Um, and uh, I've seen a lot of people go from being, you know, head of corp dev um, or even from my previous banking days, being senior bankers to being in, in finance. Um, and I love being at ServiceNow and I want to you know, stick around the hoop at, at ServiceNow. Um, but uh, realized that that being a, a senior financial, uh, uh, financial person, you know, CFO, VP of finance, SVP of finance kind of person would be a, would be a lot, have a lot more broader scope long-term. Um, still get to have the experience of like making decisions off of financial data, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, being thought of as a, as a finance person making financial decisions. Um, but um, I thought the breadth of opportunity would be real, um, much bigger going into the finance world. And so uh, moved over to the, uh, the finance team just a few months ago and now leading uh, sales and marketing finance at the company where I manage all of top line forecasting and recording. So revenue and subscription billings and then all of our sales and marketing budget. Great. I got to let you go soon, but any cool. final words of wisdom from that? Yeah. Thank you for sharing your story. Yeah. <laughs> final uh, words of wisdom before we call it. Yeah. Uh, Looking back at your street, as you can tell, and, and it's important that you, um, you know, learn from your mistakes, learn from your opportunities. Um, I think uh, entrepreneurship can be a wonderful thing. Uh, it's also incredibly challenging. I think like working at really big companies, I think it, can be really fun and exciting too. And like, there's a lot of opportunity. I think that's underappreciated about working in big public companies where, by the way, people want to work at pre-IPO companies to see uh, their equity rip, you know, ServiceNow in the three years I've been there is up uh, three times. So you can work at big public companies and, and get, you know, good equity still returns. Do, well. And still do well. Yeah. <laughs> if you join the right horse, right? That's right. That's um, right. Great. Well, Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to to join and share your story. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Patrick. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.